Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. Well, good morning again. Uh, my name is Taylor Leachman. I'm the planting pastor here at Advent, and we are taking a break this week from our sermon series in Genesis um, and inviting a guest preacher, Julio Rodriguez. You thought he was in Seattle. Uh, he is not. He is here with us this morning. Uh, now, um, Julio is a seminary student at RTS. You finished this coming year, right? One more year. Uh, uh, working on a master's in divinity uh, and is um, uh, uh, an intern of our presbytery. Uh, and so it's um, with a lot of joy that we get to invite him up uh, to come and to preach God's word to us from Psalm 32. Thank you, Julio, for being here. Let me just put this over here. Well, before uh, we begin our sermon, um, let's go ahead and enter into some prayer and ask the Lord for help. Um, Will you bow your head with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for um, the Sabbath. And may this day be a, a day in which we rest, not only physically, but also spiritually. Lord, I ask that everybody who is here, Lord, that you give eyes to see, uh, that you give ears to hear, Lord, that you would... Um, Call us and lead us into a deeper understanding of the gospel, the forgiveness of sins, the uh, righteousness of Christ imputed to us, Lord, and ultimately just help us through this text, which is so evident, um, what is true confession, Lord, and what really is the blessing of confessing our sins unto you, Lord, and that you are merciful and you are patient, Lord, and you are quick to forgive uh, all of us who come before your throne of grace, Lord, and ask. We say all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I want to invite everyone to open up their Bibles to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. And if you have uh, the physical copy, which is provided for you in the back, uh, the page number is 432. And as we find our psalm this morning, I want us to take note of Psalm 32's original title, And that could be found either right above verse 1 or right next to verse 1. And it will read, A Maskil of David. A Maskil of David. Now this is important for us to note because it's telling us two things about Psalm 32. The first thing that it tells us is, one, who is the author? And as we can see in the text, this is none other than King David, the man who is after God's own heart. And the second thing that it tells us is the purpose for which Psalm 32 was written, which was to instruct God's people. That word maskil is not an English word. It is, a, it is a Hebrew word, and some scholars believe that this term simply means to instruct, to teach, to impart wisdom. And so, therefore, Psalm 32 is an instruction of David to God's people. But what, is it, what exactly is God, uh, or is David teaching in Psalm 32? What is his instruction to God's people? Well, simply put, David will teach God's people about the sorrow of sin and the joy of God's forgiveness. David is going to teach us about the misery of sin, what to do to find relief from this misery, 
But more importantly, Psalm 32 is teaching God's people about the result of confession of sin. I'll repeat that again. Psalm 32, the main emphasis, primary emphasis that we find in this text is the result of confession of sin. It's one of the reasons why our, our, the, I've often titled this sermon, The Blessing of Confessing. And as I also said in, uh, in our prayer, in my prayer just a couple of minutes ago. And this result of confessing sin is the receiving of God's forgiveness. So dear church, Psalm 32 was written to teach you and I this morning that as often as we come before the throne of grace and deal openly and honestly with the Lord about our sin, that we uncover our sin, that we confess our sin to the Lord, that we acknowledge our sin, that he is faithful and quick to forgive us and cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. So that's really the heart of Psalm 32. And this is good news for every Christian and also for those who are far off or unbelievers. This is the message in a psalm of the gospel, in essence. And so with that being said, let us now turn to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, infallible, inspired, and life-giving words. Psalm 32, and it reads, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule. Without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. May he write these truths upon our hearts. So for those who... Uh, take notes. We'll be walking through the psalm, the psalm under four headings, uh, God's forgiveness, David's misery, David's confession, and God's wisdom. And so uh, beginning with our first heading, God's forgiveness, look with me at verse one, and it reads, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, I want us at the outset of this psalm to notice that we begin the psalm with the word blessed, which in the Hebrew literally means happy. Uh, we also might not pick up in the English, but in the Hebrew, this is actually happy. It's the word happy, but in the plural. And really what this is trying to convey here is uh, a mountain of delights. There is a bundle of joy that is happening here, happening here. And in fact, this is actually a, a celebration that is opening at the outset of Psalm 32. You could actually quite literally translate this opening of Psalm 32, Oh, the blessed Nesses, or Oh, the happy Nesses. And so here we find ourselves at the very outset of Psalm 32 in a celebration. But it's more than just a celebration. 
It's a celebration with reason. It's a celebration about an observation. Look at the beginning of verse 1, and it reads, Blessed is the one, or blessed is the man. And so this celebration is about a, a particular individual or a group of people. And why is this celebration happening? Well, it's because what God does with this man's sin. And David uses three words to describe the way in which God deals with this man's sin. He uses three words to, in essence, describe God's forgiveness. And so let's look at verse 1 again. First, David says that this man's sin or this man's transgression is forgiven. So this Hebrew word forgiven simply means to lift. It means to bear. It means to carry. And it conveys the idea of someone coming and removing something that is extremely burdensome, something that is, some, something that is, that is extremely heavy. I have often helped friends and family move into apartments or move from their apartment to uh, their homes, and um, it always happens that I end up carrying one of the heaviest objects or me and a friend are, are carrying something that is extremely heavy, and I have another good friend who's seeing us struggle, and he's just not kind of sitting there lax, but he'll come and, and he'll help us and or often help me uh, take, take this object and, and lift this burden, lift this sense of heaviness because I can no longer carry it anymore, and he takes it away or, um, or takes it away off to, to be placed in the apartment or in the house uh, with a friend. And this is kind of the idea of forgiveness. It's, it's trying to convey this, a sense of lifting, of carrying something away. And it's the reason why the psalmist in Psalm 103, uh, verse 12, writes, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So this, is, this idea of actually removing something for you from you, and it is something that is burdensome. And then secondly, we look at what David says. He says that this man's sin is covered. Now, this word covered, very much like in the English, it means to hide, it means to conceal, it means to actually overwhelm. It could have this sense of, of, of you submerging, submerging something uh, underwater. And the word is actually, it, it's trying to convey the idea of putting something completely and utterly out of sight, something completely uh, out of sight. And it's really like dropping something into the depths of the ocean, and you kind of slowly see it fade into darkness, never to be seen again. And it's one of the reasons why Micah um, writes in chapter 7, verse 19, that the Lord will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. So it kind of has this image of something just being completely submerged, never to be seen, never to be brought back up again. And third, David says that this man's sin, that the Lord counts no iniquity to this man. The word count here is a financial term. It also means to think. It means to reckon. It means to keep an account of. And so the word conveys the idea of really keeping a a record of debt. However, it's important to note that the use of this word count is actually used to describe what God no longer does. The first two words is what God would do actively. And here we see what God does you know, passively or in the negative. It describes what God no longer does. And he says that the Lord counts no iniquity to this man. And simply put, what David is saying is that the Lord no longer keeps a record of this man's sin. And he treats him as though he had never sinned and that he is innocent. He's not, he's not keeping a log. He's not keeping a record. And now, dear church, I hope we see what David is teaching us this morning. David is using these three words to teach us about the extent and perfection of God's forgiveness. 
what David is not teaching is that God only forgives 50% of sin. David is not also teaching that God forgives 75% of sin. Neither is David teaching that God forgives 99.99% of sin. Rather, what David is teaching you and me this morning is that when God declares forgiven over a person, he lifts up a person's sin and removes it as far as the east is from the west, casting it into the depths of the ocean, seeing it nor remembering it anymore, and he will no longer keep a record of your sin. In other words, sin is 100% forgiven. In a room you know, this size with this amount of people, I think there are some people that could, forgive, uh, that could struggle with God's forgiveness. Or maybe you understand that God can forgive sin, but rather you struggle with the idea that he could forgive your own sin. You see it as something that is wicked. Uh, maybe you see yourself as unworthy of God's grace, unworthy of his mercy. Uh, maybe you might even see yourself as someone who is irredeemable in this room. And if that's you this morning, I want you to know that Jesus Christ came for the forgiveness of sins, and he came to the world to save sinners. Christ did not come for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. Not for the healthy, but for those who were sick and who were in need of a Savior. And dear friends, if this is you this morning... Know for certain that there is no transgression too heavy that God cannot lift. There is no sin too wide that he cannot cover. And there is no one so far gone that he is not able or willing to save, to forgive their sins. And this is, the, this is good news. This is part of the good news of the gospel as well. And here at the opening of Psalm 30, 32, verse 1, we just find David's description of God's forgiveness in extent and perfection using these three words. It's It's beautiful. But as beautiful as God's forgiveness is, let us now turn to the sorrow of sin. We move to our second heading, David's misery. And it reads, read with me, verses 3 through 4. And David writes, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And here there's somewhat of a shift. We go from the happy man to the miserable man. And this miserable man is none other than David. In this phrase, when he says, for when I kept silent, this is really shorthand for his unwillingness to confess his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. Here David illustrates the consequence of his hidden and secret sin in very graphic language. There was no movies, there was no, well, there was books written, but not in the sense of which we have them today, or images. So the way in which David is describing here uh, his sin, the way in which it is um, uh, affecting him is very graphic. And he writes, my bones wasted away, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And, and really what David is describing here is the utter collapse of his spiritual and physical strength. Sin is having a terrible effect on him, to say the least. And also, too, if we look at at his phrase, my strength was dried up by the heat of summer. Now, we all know what this is like in the summer in Houston. If we were to go out into an open field in the middle of July at like 3 p.m., 2 p.m., we would quickly um, quickly begin to feel nauseated. 
to feel sick. Dehydration would start to set in. We would feel weak. We would begin to want to, to vomit. Um, we would begin to start sweating almost automatically. And we would begin to just feel weak. Um, we, we, would, we would thirst after water. We would thirst to get out of that situation. And David is describing sin in this exact way. He says, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David also says that he was groaning all day long. And here's a vivid description of not only his audible groans that were probably taking place in his, um, in his inner chamber, but what we learn here is that although David's lips are silent, internally there is a war raging within him. He is struggling with this sin. And then David also says, for when... For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. Now, here what David is, in essence, doing is he's diagnosing the root cause of his misery, of his struggle with sin. And he, he, in effect, states that it is actually God's heavy hand upon him. And dear Christian, David's graphic language is a lesson for God's people on the consequence of unconfessed sin. And first, we learn that there is no sin that is truly hidden, secret, or silence silent. There is always one witness for, ever, for even the most private of sin, which is God. God sees our sin because he is closer to us than we are to ourselves. God, God knows our sin because he knows our thoughts even before we think them. And therefore, dear Christian, every secret or silent sin is simply a mere failed attempt to hide from the one who knows all and sees all. Unconfessed sin is, is not only miserable, but it's also foolish. You might be able to hide sin from family and friends, your co-workers, your colleagues for a certain period of time, but you will never hide it from God. God knows. And second, we learn that there is no secret, hidden, or silent sin that continues without God's discipline. Here with me, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, and the author writes, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So, dear, there's a certain sort of logic that is is going on here in that if parents who love their children discipline them, how much more will God also do it as well? And my plea for you, if, if you're feeling the, the heavy hand of God, if you're feeling the, the misery of sin this morning, is, is to not reject it. Here with me, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 through 12, and it reads, The discipline of the Lord, my son, do not reject and do not loathe his correction. For the one whom the Lord loves, he will correct, even like a father who treats a son favorably. And therefore, consider God's heavy hand a, a gift it's actually a grace. God never presses upon the heart of his children because of their sin without the reason of leading them to restoration. Or, or put another way, God is not trying to destroy you. God is actually trying to restore you. He's trying to lead you back to himself. And then continuing to verse 5, moving to our third heading, we look at David's confession. David tells us that what he did to find what he did to find relief from his misery. And he writes, "I acknowledged my sin to you and you did not cover my iniquity. I did not cover my iniquity. 
I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And once again here, we, we find three words that David uses to describe sin. And sin, which is the word that we often use in our, you know, I guess, Christianese or English vernacular, um, it, this simply means to miss the mark. This was a term used for archers who miss their target. And the word expresses really the, confa- the, the failure to conform to God's law. We see this other word in the text, transgression, and this simply means to cross the line. It means to revolt. Um, it conveys the idea of intentional rebelling, as, as sin is, you know, you're trying to hit the mark, you're trying to uh, conform to God's law, but you fail. This idea of transgression is, is intentional. And how might that actually look like? Well, in David's life, it is a transgression looks like this. It is David knowing God's command, thou shalt not commit adultery and thou shalt not murder, yet still sleep with a woman that is not his wife and kill a man that is not his enemy. That there is a, is a very clear, uh, those, two, those two acts are clear uh, in being a transgression. And then we have this word iniquity. It means corrupt. It means twisted. It means crooked. And the word describes not necessarily what, what man does, but rather what man is. Uh, the, the, the word iniquity helps us to, to understand, as one famous theologian wrote, we are not sinners because we sin, but rather we sin because we are sinners. And so as, as we see here just with these three words that David is using, it's, David is using sin, transgression, and iniquity to really describe the extent and really perfection of our sinful nature, if you will. And all these three words are designed, uh, designed to help us understand what sin is and why sin is a problem. It's important because David teaches that the only way to find relief and misery from sin is to acknowledge, uncover, and confess to God. And so first we see that David says, I acknowledge my sin to you. And, and, and simply put, to acknowledge sin is to affirm that we are guilty and lost. That we are uh, rebellion and that we have fallen short of God's glory. That we have failed to love our neighbor rather than ourself. Uh, that we have worshipped the creation rather than the creator. And so acknowledgement, I love how uh, Augustine puts it. He says, um, before God can deliver us, we must undeceive ourselves. So this act of acknowledging our sin is really the act of undeceiving ourselves. Second, David instructs us to uncover our sin. He says, I did not cover my iniquity. And so here we learn that true confession does not downplay sin. It does not make an excuse for sin. True confession does not call sin a mistake. It does not call it an accident. Uh, True confession does not continue to conceal or hide sin as well. Rather, true confession brings it out in the open. It it reveals it to God. It, It puts it in the light. One person famously said, sin is like mold. It grows best in the dark. So it's this idea of, with with true confession, you're not only undeceiving yourself, but you're also exposing your sin uh, before God. And third, David instructs us to confess. He writes, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. Now this word confess simply means to reveal, it means to uh, speak out openly. It's, uh, it, David here is addressing uh, uh, really the form of confession, which is audible. The act of confession is an audible and verbal 
uh, acknowledgement and uncovering of your sin. But I think there's a, there's a point in which we need to make a, a clarification here. Uh, c- confession is not informing God about your sin. He, he already knows. Or rather, confession is agreeing with God about your sin. It is seeing sin the way God sees it. In a verbal ex- in a verbal expression, it's agreeing with God that your sin was not an accident, but it was an abomination, not a, a defect, but a disease, not a mistake, but that it was madness, not that it was liberty, but it was lawlessness, not that it was weakness, but it was willfulness. This is what encompasses true confession, and I really like what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, "Do not give fair names to foul sins." Call them what you will, they will smell no sweeter. So we ought to really acknowledge our sin, undeceive ourselves. We should verbalize, agree with God about our sin and as well uncover it, bring it out to the open. This is really, dear church, um, what true confession uh, encompasses. But I also want us to notice how quick God is to forgive our sin as well. David writes, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And simply put, David becomes the happy man, the blessed man of Psalm 32, verse 1. He receives God's forgiveness. David's transgressions are forgiven. His his sins are covered. The Lord uh, no longer counts his sin against him. And in essence, he receives God's perfect forgiveness here. And dear Christian, true confession acknowledges, it uncovers, it confesses sin to the Lord. True confession really says very much like David in Psalm 51 verses 3 through 4, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. But more importantly, we also learn, as Matthew Henry famously wrote, God is more willing to forgive than we are to repent. I think that's such a wonderful comfort in the Christian life that so often, as I said at the beginning of the sermon, that we come before the Lord and deal openly and honestly with him, that he is quick to forgive. And that truly, as John writes, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive sin and cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. And now we move to God's wisdom. I hear God... God's people really receive practical instruction about what to do after we have received God's forgiveness, um, after we have confessed our sin to the Lord. Now, look at me at verse 6. He writes, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. And David here is instructing the the godly. If you look at the text, these are the people that are forgiven. These are the people who have trusted in the Lord. We'll see that here in just a moment. Um, But he instructs them to pray to the Lord. And specifically in this text, this is a prayer of confession. And David instructs God's people to continually confess their sin to the Lord. And I think this is an important point because confession of sin is just not a one-time thing in the Christian faith, life, and practice. Uh, it's one of the reasons why uh, Taylor has put in the liturgy a moment where we actually confess our sin to the Lord and we actually hear the God's word that we have actually received pardon of sin. Uh, it's the reason why in the PCA that often in liturgies you're going to see this. And once again, it's important because confession of sin is just not a one-time thing. We constantly need in the Christian life to be recognizing our sin. 
so, so someone be sensitive to it, to come before the Lord and deal with him openly and honestly. To say like David, my sin is ever before me, wash me clean, create in me a clean heart, and restore me in an upright spirit. And I think confession of sin for the, the, uh, for the Christian faith life and practice, it, it really is a way in which we mortify sin. Um, once we cease to acknowledge sin, temptation will begin to abound. Uh, once we cease to uncover our sins, Satan will begin to you know, get a foothold of us. And God, y'all have actually been in Genesis, and, and I'm sure Taylor is either going to get to there, get to this text, or or um, or he's already got into it. But in Genesis verse four, chapter uh, chapters uh, four, verse seven, God warns Cain and tells him, "If you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door; its desire is contrary to you. You must rule over it." And I would argue, dear Christian, that one of the ways in which we die more and more to sin, unto sin, live more and more unto, un, unto righteousness, is to confess our sin to the Lord, to deal openly and honestly with him. And then we look at verse 7. He reads, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And, and here what we learn that after we have received God's forgiveness, God is no longer the judge, but he's actually a father. He actually becomes our shelter. He becomes our refuge. He becomes our hiding place. He becomes our protector. He becomes our deliverer. And if we look even in the text, too, we see this, 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 this um, uh, possessive uh, pronoun, me, me, me. And this is something that Luther often pointed out that in the Christian life, really the Christian life is lived in the personal pronouns. Me, my, our. And I think this is what happens once we have received Christ by faith and rest in him alone, that Christ is no longer a savior, but he is my savior. That he is no longer um, simply, in in, in your mind, a a redeemer, but rather he is my redeemer. And that's actually what happens, this is actually what David is trying to convey in verse 7, that the Lord has become his shelter, his refuge, his hiding place. And this is a wonderful joy here. And then in verse Verses chapter 8 and 9, if we, look at it, if we look at them, it reads, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. And here there is a shift in the psalm and in voice. First we were hearing from David. Now we hear, are hearing from God. And what God is promising to those who have received his forgiveness, for those who who confess their sin unto him, is that he will instruct them, that he will teach them, that he will counsel them. And one of the commands that we find here is, do not be stubborn like a horse or a mule without understanding. Now, I've, I've never owned a farm or been around horses or mules, but what I have heard is that mules are very stubborn. It's hard to get them where they want to go. Uh, they, they must be uh, uh, curbed with bit and bridle, which is a way of kind of uh, steering them in the direction that, that they want to go. And, um, I mean, I think this is very much like the Christian life. Uh, we, we sung in Come Thou Font um, this morning that we truly are prone to wander, prone to leave the God that we love. And it's for this very reason that we ought to come before God's word in, in, in a very humble disposition and submit to his word. To not be stubborn, to not be like a mule. 
Um, and the reason is, and I like how one uh, scholar put it, he says, if David acted like a mule and God put the bit of suffering in the bridle of discipline in his life, he will do the same for you and me if necessary. I think that's a, not only a warning, but it's, it's also a comfort in that you know, God, God, God only loves us so far uh, so much as to discipline us, but also to, to command us and, and, and exhort us to walk in a, in a humble spirit. And then we conclude here with verses 10 through 11. And he says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. And the same way that Psalm 32 begins is the same way that it ends. Happiness, in essence, is revisited here. And David calls all those who trust in the Lord, he calls them righteous, and, and he also commands us to be glad, to rejoice, and to, to shout for joy. And why might this be the case? Why is he telling us this? Well, because for all those who have confessed their sin, for all those who have trusted in the Lord, have received God's forgiveness. Now, in the Christian life, uh, as, as being a Christian post-cross, looking, looking back to the, to the cross of Christ, there is actually a profound truth here for us. And if you would, turn with me to Romans chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. Um, and, and I just want to, want to read it for us real quick, because Psalm 32 definitely has a, a profound application for the Christian life today. And now let me go ahead and read verses, uh, Romans chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. He says, And to the one who does not work but believes, or trust in the Lord, in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the, bless, the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sin are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And that's is what Paul is doing here in Romans chapter 4. Is he's quoting from Psalm 32 verse 1. And he is in essence saying is, dear Christian, you are the blessed man of Psalm 32 verse 1, that upon resting, receiving, and accepting Christ for salvation, that you not only are declared righteous, but you also have received God's perfect forgiveness. And he's making application of Psalm 32 verse 1 and applying it to the Christian today. So for those who are believers, who trust in the Lord, who trust in Christ for salvation, I think the, the good news for us this morning is that your sin is truly forgiven and you are declared righteous before God. Um, and, and this is something worthy of, of celebrating. You, you, and also, there are also benefits to that as well. You're not, no longer a child of wrath, but rather a child of God. That you're no longer enemies, but friends with him. Uh, and that you are no longer lost, but you are now found. That you are given the spirit of adoption. That you are sealed for redemption. And this is a reason to celebrate. It is a joy to know, as one hymn says, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for sending your son to die for us. Um, Lord, and if there's anybody here that is either um, pondering whether to, to, to place their faith upon your son, Lord, I pray that you would draw them. And those who are um, uh, 
believers this morning, Lord, help us recognize and celebrate over the forgiveness of sin, the pardon of sin, as well as the, as well as the righteousness that is imputed to us, Lord. Thank you that you are merciful, patient, uh, slow to anger, and that you truly are a God who forgives even the most wicked of sinners as well, that we are uh, not so righteous as to be worthy, Lord, of, of, of being chosen by you, and at the same time, we are uh, not so sinful as to completely be lost, Lord. I thank you for your grace, your mercy, and for the sending of your Son. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.